Let's look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. And somebody give Deb some oxygen back there. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Father, we pray that you will now speak your word into us, even as you breathe your spirit into us anew and fresh this morning. And that you will give us strength. As Brian was saying, you know, we get weary in our flesh, but you bring strength. Lord, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we pray that you'll fill us up with that joy, with the anticipation, with the expectation of of coming days. And that we might keep our eyes on Jesus. And Lord, as we do so this morning, teach us your word. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord through Zechariah can easily be summed up in his name. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. Say the meaning with me. The Lord remembers. The Lord blesses at the appointed time. Let's try that all together. The Lord remembers. The Lord blesses at the appointed time. And that's the message of Zechariah. He remembers, He blesses at the appointed time. And the appointed time, my friends, is always the right time. God never appoints a time and then when the time comes, goes, oh boy, <laughs> kind of missed that one. The appointed time is never early, it's never late, it's never rushed, it's never lagging. And I believe we have come to the appointed time as a fellowship. And for us, it is time to move from this glorious, homey, dusty, bird-loving, rat-visited, bat-occasioned, prowler-growler-buzzing barn. It's a barn you know that's been a warm and loving place. Now, for coming on 11 years, a barn where we have experienced a spirit-inhabited home for this whole fellowship. But this fellowship is not this barn. And it's easy to confuse the two. Because we know how we feel when we come into this place. It's the same as my home. I know how I feel when I walk in the door. And thinking back to the very first night that we stayed in our new home, when we first moved in, that was the day we were going to be there and actually sleep in the house, and the whole family was there. And I remember walking through the house with the lights down on my way to bed thinking, it doesn't feel like home. Now it does. Because now there are memories there. Now my family has been there for uh, several, nine years. And we have experienced joys and sorrows and we've struggled together and we've laughed together and it it feels like home. And that's why the barn feels the way it does. But i got to tell you something, gang. Much as I love this barn, I don't want to spend eternity here. Does anybody? If you do, you're weird. (laughs) 
It's time to make the move, and not because Rick says so, or because the elders have prayed about it, or because the county is finally allowing it. It is time to make the move because Father says so. Pack it up, kids. Because we ain't done yet. We haven't reached the final destination. Brothers and sisters, it is time for us to branch out. I've never been unamazed at the work of the Father over the years. And we've talked about this many times, how how where He has us in the Scriptures is always so amazingly timed and not timed by me. It's just we're teaching through the Bible. By the way, I'm a Genesis 1 guy. (laughs) But it amazes me that God brings teaching when He brings it. And I I literally, the last couple of weeks have been so busy and so crazy over the building and trying to get things moved over there and trying at the same time to do all the normal stuff that I do. But it's been hard to move if you've been here on Wednesday nights. We have not gone very fast through Zechariah. Much of that is there's only so much time in the day for me to study and prepare and think through it. And so we're only now in chapter 3. And I had to stop at the end of chapter well, chapter 3, verse 7 on Wednesday because literally that was all the time I had. So when I got up the next morning to start thinking about the word for this morning... You might think, well, Rick's got to have been preparing this for weeks, the last Sunday in the barn, the first Sunday in the... And oh, no, 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 I'm barely there. And I started to read, and the Lord said, I'm bringing the branch. And I started to think about what that means for us, and I am so touched by this, and I want you to really hear it, because for us to branch out, it's cool. We know a man named Branch. And we are connected to the man that God calls the branch. A year or two after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Joseph was warned by an angel to get out. The threat of Herod was rising. The, the desire in his heart to protect his rule and his authority, and it loomed in that great infanticide that we all know so well happened in those days. All the male children under the age of two who were slaughtered simply because Herod didn't want to be threatened by a possible Messiah. What word comes to Joseph? The angel tells Joseph, get out. They flee. They go to Egypt. Now keep your finger in Zechariah and if you will just turn two books over to the right to the book of Matthew. Chapter 2, verse 15. Joseph and Mary and the child, they flee to Egypt. They stay down in Egypt for an amount of time. Note this in verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea 11 verse 1. Who could have imagined? We've talked about this at Christmas time, oh, several years ago. Who could have imagined that the, the child, the Messiah, could be called a Nazarene, could be born in Bethlehem, and could come out of Egypt all at the same time? But that's what God works out. And Matthew works very hard to show us that, to explain that in the opening chapters of his book. This prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son, was given by Hosea seven centuries before Joseph fled to Egypt. Seven centuries before he returned out of Egypt, bringing the Son of God, bringing Jesus back into the country. But the story goes on down in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 2. 
But when he heard that Archelaus or Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of the Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Which prophet said that? If you've studied these things, you know that's, that's a tough one. And in fact, the reality is there's only one prophet who spoke those words that he would be called a Nazarene. The only birth prophecy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 that you really have to dig for. The other ones are obvious. The other ones are just direct quotations of, of Scripture. But this one, how is it that he would be called a Nazarene? You can find it in one place. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that's it. Well, how shall he be called a Nazarene? Uh, What's the connection here? You Bible students know the Hebrew word for branch is netzer. Netzer. It means fresh, bright, uh, grown green is what it literally means. The Hebrew root word for netzer is natsar, which means to guard, to watch, or to keep. That's where Nazareth gets its name, from natsar. Now I know some Bible students would say, no, no, it's got to come from Nazarite, like the ancient Hebrew Nazarite vow, Nazarite, Nazareth. Isn't that where it comes from? No, Nazarite is a completely different word in the Hebrew. Nazir, not natsar. Well, they sound a lot alike. Yeah, so do pun and punt. (laughs) Two totally different words. Both can be a real kick, but they're two (laughs) different words. Nazir, Nazarite, Natsar, where they get the word Nazareth. Take it a bit further. Oftentimes the Arabic and the Hebrew are very closely related. They're both Shemitic languages, Semitic languages. And so if you compare Arabic with Hebrew, look at the two, oftentimes you get more information. Here's one of those, the Arabic name for Nazareth today. Nazareth today, which is the largest Arab populated city in Israel. Nazareth is on Nasira. Nasira means watchtower. Natsar means to keep watch. That's where Nazareth gets its name. You may have seen or even used that gold on black Arabic letter. Some of you, I've seen this on Facebook. The Arabic letter for in, noon. It's, it's in social media. It's being used by Christians as a, as a sign of solidarity because that letter is what ISIL terrorists have been painting on homes in Syria and Iraq to point out where Christians lived. Nazarenes. People connected to that, that one of Nazareth. All that to say, Matthew's assertion is absolutely spot on. A Netzer, a Natsar, from his roots will bear fruit. He will be called Netzer. He will be called the branch. He will be called a Natsar. He will be called a Nazarene. The connection is beautiful and powerful. He's the branch who keeps watch over all who are saved by His grace. He, He keeps you. When you give your heart to Jesus, He is the watchtower over you. He maintains that salvation for you. And by the way, in His sacrifice, the branch bore this name even on His death sentence. 
John 19.19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. We're told, therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription from the place where Jesus was crucified, uh, for the place was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Why? So that all the world could see the sacrifice of a man called Branch, the Nazarene. So in Zechariah 3, we are introduced to the one called Branch. Isaiah mentioned him before, granted, but now Zechariah is using a different word. It's not Natsar. Or Netzer for branch. The word in Zechariah 3 is Samach. Samach. It's another Hebrew word, but it is synonymous with Isaiah's Netzer. If you're talking about a branch on a tree in the Hebrew, you could say Samach, you could say Netzer. Either one works. They work uh, together very well. So why is Isaiah's word different? Why didn't Isaiah just use Samach? Any guesses? It's so that God could fulfill prophecy. Okay, Isaiah pulls out this word, Nazar, for Nazarene, so he could be called a Nazarene. Isaiah wouldn't have known that, right? Joseph wouldn't have known that when he brought Jesus back up to Nazareth and Jesus was called a Nazarene. But Isaiah uses that word uniquely so that prophecy would later be fulfilled. That understood, they are synonymous words, Samach, Netzer. The more obvious Hebrew word, Samach, is used four times in the Bible to name the Messiah. The Messiah is the branch, and a good rabbi would tell you that today. Branch is the name for Messiah. It has always been the name for Messiah. It's always been understood very clearly to be. And so we see this word used four times to describe Messiah, to reveal four remarkable characteristics of the branch. Let me show you these real quickly before we go on in Zechariah. Uh, verse 8 does tell us that I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. So the first thing to understand about Messiah, about the branch, is he is the intermediary servant. If you're a note-taker, jot that down. The branch is the intermediary servant. That is, he's the go-between. This branch. He's the mediator. He's the advocate. He's the one who stands between man and God. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and only one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the go-between. He's the one who is both God and man. Man and God, He stands in the middle. That's the idea that we're getting when we first get this introduction to the Samach, the branch in Zechariah 3.8, the intermediary servant. More on this later. Skip ahead to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Zechariah 6, 12. Which tells us, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, Samach. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Second thing to note about the branch, not only is he the intermediary servant, he is also the industrious man. He's the builder. He's the one you go to to get the job done. He is the one who will build the temple of the Lord in the coming millennial kingdom. I don't want to talk too much about this, because Lord willing, we're going to save it for next Sunday in the new building. What if we're wrong? What if the county doesn't follow through? What if we don't get into the new building next Sunday? No big deal. We'll be here. We'll go. Whatever. You know? 
But we're going to talk about this next week, and I think the Lord has something to say to us once we've settled over in the new facility as well. But understand, the branch is not only the intermediary servant, the go-between between man and God, he's the industrious man who builds the temple of the Lord. He's the one behind the building. Now, what you want to do is keep your finger in Zechariah and turn back left to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is right between Isaiah and Lamentations. Jeremiah chapter 23. I love to hear the pages turn. Keep doing it. Man, keep your fingers in good exercise. You can let your body just fall apart, but keep those fingers working in the Scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. So the prophet writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, Samach, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord Our righteousness, the intermediary servant, the industrious man, is also, number three, the ideal king. The ideal king. He is the one, this branch, who must be in the line and the promise of David, as Jeremiah says. I'm going to raise up for David a righteous branch. This one's going to be in the line of the the rule of the authority of David. The ideal king. The Lord shared this with David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read this to you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now some Bible scholars and perhaps some of you would say, wouldn't that be Solomon? The son that he raised up after David? The one who would build the first temple? I mean, that just sounds like he's just talking about Solomon. How are you saying that this is related to Messiah? Listen, Solomon was just a vague representation of the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. Jesus even pointed that out, that he was greater than Solomon. That the Queen of Sheba will rise up in the last days and point this out. That as great and glorious as Solomon was as a king, Jesus is far greater Messiah, son of David. He is the one. And Solomon, whose name, Shlomo, which I just like to say because it's a fun name. Shlomo means peace. Shalomo. And who is the king of peace? See, Jesus is. Solomon is just a portrayal of that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 tells us there will be no end to the increase of his government or of shalom, peace. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Note that, justice and righteousness. The ideal king. The ideal king. Man, you know, no human government works. Democracy, it's a good shot. Representative government, nice try, you know, but no government of man ultimately works because man is sinful. The only thing that could work would be a dictatorship, but the dictator would have to be flawless. He would have to be perfectly righteous, perfectly just. He would have to have all wisdom. And the ideal king will. The ideal king. Because he is right 
in everything He does. He's righteous. He's going to rule with wisdom and with justice and with righteousness. There will be no political flaps. There will be no scandal sheets, no divided parties. There will be parties, but not divided parties. Parties in the kingdom are going to be in the the form of annual feasts as we go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. This last week was, was Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. Second blood moon. (laughs) This is the Shemitah year as well. Did you know that? The Shemitah. Every seven years of release, the the Sabbath year is between 2014 and 2015. Writers were seeing four blood moons. It's interesting times. I'm not dropping a pin on anything yet. We don't know the day or the hour. Except, by the way, Did I tell you this? That the day or the hour, that that's the ancient Jewish name for the Feast of Trumpets? The Feast of we don't know the day or the hour. Because they don't. Because the Feast of Trumpets depends on the coming of the new moon. And the coming of the new moon has to be witnessed by two people at the same time. Could be on the 14th, could be on the 15th of the month. They never really know. So they don't know the day or the hour. 14th, maybe. 15th, could be. What hour? We don't know. When we see the new moon, we'll blow the trumpets. You do not know the day or the hour when the last trumpet will sound. So keep your eyes open, kids. Where in the world am I? (laughs) Jump ahead ten chapters there in Jeremiah to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Continuing this, this thought, this, this train of thought on the ideal king. Jeremiah 33.15 In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. There he is again, the Samach. To spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called... The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. The ideal king. And Jeremiah says, when the ideal king, the righteous branch of David rules, the city of Jerusalem itself will be called the Lord our righteousness. The branch is called the Lord our righteousness. The city is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh Sidkenu. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And the city will be called that because the great king will reside there. That's where we'll go to see him. That's where Jesus will hang out, so to speak. And that's the name of the branch. The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu. So, he's the ideal king. He is the industrious man. He's the intermediary servant. He's the Lord our righteousness. And by the way, that's a huge hint of the final trait of the branch. One more characteristic of this branch called the Lord our righteousness. Go back to Isaiah. Back left. Just one book to Isaiah chapter 4. The Lord is building a case here for us to understand characteristics 
of Messiah, Messiah the branch. Verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 4. In that day, notice he keeps saying, all the prophets keep saying, in that day, speaking of the appointed time, the right time. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. But the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning And then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over all all her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and a brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day, and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. And again in verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful, the branch of the Lord. This is the only time of the, of the four or five references here that the branch of David, the righteous branch, is called the branch of Yahweh. What does that tell us? Number four, He is the incarnate God. The branch, this one coming, is the Holy One of Israel. This is the Lord God, Emmanuel, God with us. He who is one with the Father. As Paul writes in Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, all of this describes the man who is called the branch. You see the connection of the four attributes? Anyone picking up on what's being put down here? Listen again. Intermediary servant. Industrious man. Ideal king. Incarnate God. Four traits. King, servant, man, God. This is exactly how the Gospels portray Jesus. Matthew comes along focusing on presenting Jesus as the ideal king. Luke or Mark, secondly, emphasizes Jesus as the servant. Luke calls attention to Jesus as a man, and John points out Jesus as God. King, servant, man, God. These are the four descriptions in the Hebrew Scriptures of the branch, the Messiah. See how beautiful the Word of God is. The man called branch. And this shows up time and again in the Bible, always highlighting the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that just give you chills? Now I want you to go back to Zechariah 3. Put on your Bible belts. We're going to roll here. Back in Zechariah 3. The prophet is still in the fourth of eight visions. All received on the same night. We talked about on Wednesday night, the prophet was a young man. Probably a teenager. When he received these visions. We know that because in chapter 2, he's referred to as a young man, and the word young man there, na'ar, is the Hebrew word for a youth up to adolescence. And that's the word that is used for this guy. So this young Zechariah has these amazing eight visions in the midst of the night. He's not sleeping. They're visions of the Lord. And the fourth one we talked about is called the vision of the filthy priest. 
Because it's a vision where, well, let me recap it, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest. And he's standing there before the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? This is Jesus. Zechariah is standing there, or Joshua the high priest, standing there before the angel of the Lord, and he's dressed in filthy rags. Not good for a high priest. In addition, Satan is there. And he is pointing an accusational finger at Israel. Well, he's pointing at Joshua the high priest, but Joshua is a representation of all of Israel. The high priest always is. Remember that when you look at the priesthood, the priests were the representatives of the people to God. That was their role. And so the high priest representing Israel, standing in filthy rags, their sin. Satan is pointing the finger, look at this, look at their sin, look at what's going on here. And the angel, the angel of the Lord, the branch, Jesus, commands the filthy garments be removed and he clothes Joshua in a festal robe. A celebratory robe or or a high priestly robe. And the whole vision there in chapter 3, the first uh, five verses or so, are just this amazing picture of the way God works, how He gives grace and forgiveness and restoration. I'm standing there filthy and He says, let me clothe you in robes of righteousness. Isaiah 64 verse 6, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah 61.10, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And so we see this In the vision, this portrayal of of Israel saved, Zacharias sees this whole thing. And that's the vision that he's getting. But now in verse 8, Zechariah is given a word for and about Joshua the high priest. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are assembled. Joshua and his buddies. Joshua and his friends sitting before him. Most likely Joshua and the rest of the priests. We see this phrase used a few times in scriptures. We see it with Ezekiel, who has the, the, the men stand, sitting before him. And the, the indication here is it's Joshua and the priesthood. All sitting there. And they are all together men who are a symbol. A symbol. Which gives us now a deeper understanding of the branch as the intermediary servant. That's where we're going to focus for a few more minutes here. The branch is the intermediary servant because the high priest and all the priests are symbols of a greater servant. The one that the book of Hebrews calls the mediator of a better covenant. The intermediary. Remember that the priests stand between man and God or at least they represent the people of Israel, to the Lord. Jesus takes it a step further and literally stands between Father and and, and His children. But He is there as the mediator, the servant of a better covenant. The priests are intermediary servants, like the branch. But they were only symbols of the one to come. And all these things that God set up in Israel, all these things we've been studying across the years here, literally, about Israel, they were all pictures that God was painting of the greater truth that was to come. To help us over time have this glorious understanding 
of what God was planning to do even in the first place. Jesus, the branch, is the servant of Israel and all the world. And He's the only servant we will ever need. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. Not by the blood of animals. Not by the sacrifice done by a priest. Not by the blood taken by the high priest on Yom Kippur once a year and sprinkled on the altar. No, that's not enough. That was never enough. That was never intended to be enough. They were just symbols of what was coming. Let me just read this to you. This is over in Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to zip over there, you can, but I'm not going to take time and and wait. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not... And not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year make perfect those who draw near. That's what I was just saying. The Hebrew writer makes it clear. All of that could never fulfill the job. It was just kind of holding off. Stemming the tide, if you will. Painting a picture of the one who would come and do it. Hebrews 10 verse 2, otherwise they would not have, they would not have ceased to be offered these sacrifices because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Yeah, I gotta say something about that. The worshipper, note this, the worshipper once cleansed will no longer have the consciousness of sin. Christians, if you have been cleansed of your sin, worship in that freedom. Because you're not called upon to dwell on and wallow in those things. Don't wallow worship. That's the beauty of grace. I am no longer in my sin. I don't sit there and feel bad and guilty and shamed. That's what the the accuser does. No, I glory in God for the grace that He has poured out. And that's what enables me to worship. And you know this. I've experienced this. When you come into church and it's been a bad, sinful week, it's hard to worship. But the Lord wants us to worship. So what does He do? He takes the sin away. He says, let me erase that from your consciousness. Don't dwell on those things. Come to me and worship. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Yom Kippur, very, very somber time in Israel. The awesome days between the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those ten days in between are solemn days for Jewish people. Days of reflection. Days of trying to do good deeds to erase some of the sin of the previous year. never works. It never works. It's just a reminder, every sacrifice, a reminder of sin. He says, for it is impossible for the blood of, go- of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? They're bulls and goats. How can that work? 
How could that ever work? It's just a picture. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, Jesus speaking, in the scroll of the book, it is written of Me to do Your will, O God. And that's Jesus quoting in Hebrews 10.7, Psalm 40, verse 7. Peter put it this way. He said, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you are healed. Man, worship God in your healing. Praise the Lord in your cleansing. 2 Corinthians 8-9 You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich... And the implication is, you're poor. Yet for your sake, He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. That's what the intermediary servant did on the cross. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He Himself is the propitiation, the total cleansing of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Which, as I've I've said before, is not a message of universalism. It is a message of total cleansing available to all who will take it. It's universal invitation. Come to me and be cleansed. His blood is sufficient. There's not going to be a single person who comes to Jesus and says, I'd like to be saved. Oh, you know what? We're out of blood. I'm sorry. We kind of ran out. (laughs) Bummer. It's not going to happen. The service which Jesus our High Priest, the branch, renders is nothing less than the total and complete washing away of all sin, again, so that we don't wallow, we worship. Back to Zechariah. So you and your friends, Joshua, are symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Verse 9, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Whoa, wait a minute. I was just getting used to the branch and now we're on to a stone? Now there's a stone? Who's the stone? The branch is the stone. And the stone is the branch. Psalm 118.22 The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And Jesus said in Matthew 21, 42, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Why all of a sudden are we talking about a stone? Because this message, this vision, is for Israel. It is for Israel to understand. And it was Israel who rejected the cornerstone. It was Israel for whom the stone became a stumbling. They would stumble over this stone. Paul writes in Romans 9.31, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They never got there. Still aren't there. Israel still has not arrived. 
still is trying those conservative, those ultra-conservative, those Hasidic Jews still trying to keep law as if that will ever get them there. And all it does is mess you up, man. All the works, all the religion. I told you, recent trip to Israel, not the last one, but the I think it was a couple previous as we were flying out there. I remember because Mary and I were sitting in straight chairs because we couldn't put our chairs back. You remember that story? There were a couple little Turkish people behind us who would not let us put our seats back. Every time we did, they'd start kicking the seats. It's like, what up? <laughs> we land in Tel Aviv. We begin to deplane, and as I'm walking off the plane, I look at where all the Hasidic Jews, these ultra-religious Jews were sitting, and the place was trashed. Absolutely littered garbage everywhere. I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, what kind of an example are you even setting for the... They don't care. Because it's religion, man. All i got to do is what it tells me to do, and it doesn't say don't litter. So whatever. That's what happens. And, and Paul says that's the problem. He says they, they did not pursue the Lord by faith. They, they pursued it as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, he said. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, Isaiah said, He who believes in this stone will not be disturbed. Paul alters it slightly and says he will not be disappointed. It's, it's a, a variation of the same word. Pursuing salvation in your own good behavior will only lead to disappointment. Because week in and week out, you'll slide into church if you even make it week in and week out. And you'll sit there and the songs will come on and again you'll be wallowing in your sin. You'll think about the things that you, you tried. You, you, last week I committed. Last week I was going to do it. By next week, I'm going to be a good Christian. And next week, you stink. And you're looking down, and you're going, filthy robe, filthy rags. Missing the fact that Jesus has already changed and given you the robe of righteousness, His grace. And saved you not by works, but by faith in His grace. This is what the branch does. This is what the stone does. He has a foundation. There's but one foundation, Paul says. There's no other foundation stone, just one Jesus. In whom we put our faith. And if we believe in the stone, if we trust that the stone is solid, then we know we're saved. It's not based on me, it's based on Him. And so Peter echoes all of this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Okay, but what about the seven eyes? I think I saw that in one of those old early 70s Sinbad movies. <laughs> the stone with seven eyes. What's going on? The seven eyes just speaks of the sevenfold grace and wisdom of Jesus. The complete. The word seven. The number seven in Scripture. Complete. There's something complete. The all-seeing complete eyes. He sees everything going on. His grace is complete. As Delineated by Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. 
The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Count it all up with the spirit of the Lord as the central shaft, even like the lampstand in the temple. Seven attributes of the spirit of Jesus. So a stone with seven eyes, that makes sense. It fits in the prophetic word of God. Revelation chapter 5 verse 6. Think about this vision. John is writing, it says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. First time I read that, it freaked me out. I'm like, Lord, I have enough trouble with the Trinity and now you're throwing out seven spirits. What's the deal here? The seven spirits simply is the complete Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ Jesus. So, when we see this stone in the vision of Zechariah, with seven eyes, God is speaking specifically of the rock-solid nature of the branch of the Spirit of Christ. And the seven eyes also point again to the complete vision that he sees and he judges perfectly. But continuing on, note this, interesting. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. I'm going to inscribe something on this stone, he says. We don't know what the inscription is. It doesn't tell us. That's frustrating. I want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. According to the Talmud, this is curious to me, that the foundation stone of the second temple, the stone is called the Eben Shetiyah. The Eben Shetiyah, that foundation stone, had engraved upon it the four letters of the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, was inscribed on the foundation stone of the second temple. I'm going to inscribe on this stone. And they inscribed. And by the way, that happened right at the same time Zechariah was prophesying, didn't it? The foundation was laid. Haggai, Zechariah, 520 B.C., they're working on the temple. They get finally back to work on the temple. So the inscription on the foundation stone was right then. And and I wonder if Zechariah was not aware of it. It would be interesting to know that. But here the Lord says through Zechariah, I'm going to engrave... I'm going to write an inscription on this stone. Well, why doesn't he tell, it, tell us what it is? Because like the YHWH, earlier uh, Brian said Jehovah. Some say Yahweh. Some say Yav. We don't know what the pronunciation is. We do not know how to pronounce the I Am. We still don't. Jewish people stopped pronouncing it ages ago out of respect for the name. So it's still a name that is literally unspoken, at least among the the Hebrews, the pronunciation unknown, and the inscription on the stone seems to imply then, that inscription on the stone of the foundation, it implies a God who is ineffable, unknowable. I mean, if He's God and we're creation... We will never fully know Him. We, we need an eternity to get to know Him. We got one. But He's unknowable. He's, he's beyond comprehension. His name, that name Yahweh even, is, is, is left in this almost mysterious way before us. 
And in Revelation 19, verse 11, we're told, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head he has many diadems, and he has a name written which no one knows except himself. We don't know. Why? Why can't we know this name, Lord? Because as much as we know Christ, there is an aspect of Jesus who remains beyond all comprehension. Because He is God. The ineffable One. The indescribable One. We do know this much. That there's an implication here of this engraved stone. And it is that we can be absolutely certain that Israel's future salvation and ours is written in stone. It is a sure thing. And so the vision beautifully ends in verse 10. In that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. The branch will rule. And so all Israel will have their vines and their fig trees under which to sit and rest and relax. It is a promise of an invitation to the kingdom. And it will be a day when vines will stretch out their branches and fig trees their limbs with fruitfulness and joy and peace. Samach, the branch. Literally in the Hebrew means one who branches out. What if, what if Jesus never did? You ever think about that? What if He never left the manger? What if He never branched out from that barn, quote-unquote? What if He stayed there? What if He never left the glories of heaven in the first place? Never put on flesh to dwell among us? What if God had just stayed put? What if Jesus had never spread out His branches, His arms like branches, and had them nailed to Calvary's tree? Have you ever allowed yourself just a moment to ask the question, what if God had never made that move, never branched out? The answer is we'd have no hope. We would have no peace. We'd have no joy. We would have no salvation. We would be left hopeless in the world. All this to say, gang, we have to branch out because He did. For those who say, I wish we could stay in the barn, listen, we don't have a choice. And it's not because the county says we can't be here. We don't have a choice because He made the choice. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who is the branch, you have to branch out. You cannot stay put. It's the very nature of Messiah to nurture growth. It's what He does. And Jesus said in John 15 verse 4, Abide in Me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, and now you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do nothing. And I know that. I stand over there in that building, I look around and I say, I didn't do any of this. I cannot believe what I see. 
And yeah, it's a fleshly, physical, tangible thing. I get all that. But it's a thing. It started with 20 people in a living room. And I look at all this and I say, God, You are faithful. God, You are remarkable. God, You have done great things. And I, I don't have a clue how this all worked. I really don't. Well, Rick, didn't you have a strategy and a business plan? No! Most of the first year I, I studied and I picked my nose. I mean, that was about it. We are called to branch out, to bear fruit. That's what living for Jesus is all about. Gang, this is an exciting time for us. A great opportunity for us to step forward. Not to get more comfortable, but to use that facility to be less comfortable. Because we're opening those doors and getting people in there and carpet's going to get stained. Praise the Lord. I want to know who the first person is who stains that carpet. I'm going to give you a plaque. (laughs) All right? Leslie. Leslie, did she already stain it? Right, when? Was it this last week? I can have some fun with that. (laughs) To branch out in the Lord. To grow as a fellowship. And when I say grow, listen, it means growing in His Word. It means growing in His Spirit, by His Spirit. It means growing in faith and love and, and hope. And it means like never before taking the mission of this fellowship, the mission of the gospel of His grace out into this world and telling people and bringing people. Because there are people who are lost and hurting and fearful and desperate and God dropped this fellowship right here on the tip of North Whidbey Island and said, Go get them. Go get them. Branch out, gang. Someone might be sitting here right now and going... The problem is, Rick, that branching out means I have to move away. If I really listen to this, and if this is a word from the Lord, it means I have to move away. It means I'm heading into missions. And I really like it here. Or the problem is, Rick, I hear you say branch out, and the Lord's been leading me to go to another church in Oak Harbor to work there and to serve there, and I don't want to do it. Or to branch out means I've got to do something that I don't want to do. You think Jesus wanted to go to the cross? Remember when he was on his knees in the garden, that was not a prayer of want to, it was a prayer of willingness. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We are called to branch out. Whatever the Lord is telling you, whatever he is speaking into your heart, and we as this fellowship will continue to grow and to branch out because that's his heart for us. That's his desire. We've got to keep growing. And by the way, it's not just in His Word, Spirit, faith, hope, love, mission, vision, all of that. It's growing, yes, in numbers. And I'm not counting. I have yet to count how many people go to the bridge. I don't know. I don't really want to know. God knows. But we need to see this church growing in number of people being saved. That is my heart's desire. It's the Father's heart's desire. And so yes, we need to keep growing. Well, I don't want to grow. I'm sorry. Talk to the Father. I like it small. Well, okay, again, sorry. Get in a small group. You like it small? We have great small groups where you'll be ministered to and touched and nurtured and loved. Great, that's awesome. And then let's keep growing. I love this barn. I really do. I was sad walking down here this morning. I get choked up thinking about it. 
But we got to go. And we can't stay. The time has come not to store up seed in the barn, but to get out into the field and bring in the harvest. So let's do that. Amen?